You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for March 2011. Today's episode is titled, All People and Organizations Begin with Faith. Are you a person of faith or a person of reason? Most would prefer to be a person of reason because it sounds more logical. Being logical is viewed as superior to being a person of faith because it is assumed that logical people have superior intelligence and are more successful in life. People of faith are viewed as weak, needy, and less successful. But is this a valid assessment? Faith in human reasoning should be submitted to genuine faith in Christ. Since God makes the rules for His universe, organizations that achieve enduring success will be built by people of the Christian faith, people who demonstrate Christianity by their actions. Enduring organizational success is proportional to the degree that the organization's members grow and mature in their faith in Christ. Therefore, management should make it a priority to lead workers by example to maturity in Christ. And now, Dr. Chester brings us the message titled, Seven Levels of Faith. The title is Seven Levels of Faith, Teaching from a Biblical Worldview. I want to make that very clear since there was some confusion about what seven levels of faith was referring to. So we will be talking about a biblical perspective of faith tonight. Let me pray, and then we'll begin. Well, Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to study and learn. We thank you that you are a God that that teaches his servants, and we're here to learn from you tonight. We're here for your spirit to speak to us through our conversation. So would you guide and direct this uh, this teaching tonight, guide and direct our interaction May it glorify and honor you. May it reveal truth that will transform us. So we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's get going here. Let's talk about faith and some definitions of faith. These are dictionary definitions, common definitions. Uh, These won't be particularly surprising. Uh, The first one is fidelity to one's promises. Uh, That really refers more to trust, but that's listed as one of the top definitions of faith if you look on the dictionary. Secondly, something that is believed, especially with strong conviction. Uh, For example, a system of religious beliefs. So that would be referring to the faith. Scripture talks about the faith. It's talking about the system of thinking that's associated with Christianity, for example. And another definition is faith is a firm belief or personal conviction in something for which there is no proof. Now, I'd like to challenge that last definition a little bit. So let me ask this question. uh, What is a proof? Well, the definition of a proof is the process or an instance of establishing the validity of a statement, especially by derivation from other statements, in accordance with principles of reasoning. That's the dictionary definition. So just an example of that, let's prove that the moon is real. So here's the way that I might go about proving that to you. Uh, I would say, whatever I see with my eyes is real. I see the moon, therefore the moon is real. Now, we've probably all seen these kinds of proofs as we uh, were in school growing up. The question is, have I really proved that the moon is real? You see, the challenge with this is that a proof always begins with givens. Uh, Givens are statements of faith. So ultimately, any proof that you come up with for anything is based on faith because it's based on assumptions that cannot be proven. So when you believe an assumption 
or you presuppose something that cannot be proven, you've taken a step of faith. So uh, this last definition here that faith is a firm belief in something which there is no proof, I think is really a wrong definition. Uh, that's, that is a misleading definition. Ultimately, all proofs rest on some faith, some level of faith in something. You believe in your senses. You believe in your observational skills. You believe in your, your mind being able to process data and reach conclusions. All of these are points of, of faith that you make that you generally don't even talk about. I know when I went through my Ph.D. program, my professors never shared with me their fundamental presuppositions, their fundamental assumptions. They just made those assumptions, and they, they presented what they taught me as if it was some grand proof coming uh, from rational argument. Well, it was rational in a sense, but it was ultimately based on faith, but they never told me that they were basing it on faith. So what we want to do tonight is talk about true faith, the, what faith really is, particularly from a biblical perspective. So let's go to the uh, probably the best text of all dealing with faith, Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 3. It says here, now faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain for what we do not see. That word sure there is a Greek word which it's a, it's a compound word, hypostasis. Hypo means under, and stasis uh, is a solid foundation. So you put yourself under a solid foundation when you are you're acting on true faith. So faith is intended to put a, a foundation in your life from which you can build your life. Uh, just a simple little illustration. When I built my home here in North Texas, my dad gave me three pieces of advice. One of them was was to put a good foundation in. And so what I did was I, I put a slab on grade, and then I had piers drilled about 30 feet in the ground to rock. So the slab is on piers, and the piers are connected to rock. And I don't know how to make the foundation any better than that. And so that's, that's the essence, I think, of what he's trying to say here, the writer of Hebrews, is to build your life on a really solid foundation. And so what would that be? Well, the, the most solid foundation of all is going to be Jesus Christ, and we'll come back to that in a minute. But let's go on with this text. Uh, the next sentence says, this is what the ancients were commended for. That word ancients is the word presbyteros, which we get elder or forefathers. This is referring to mature, wise men. So they built their lives on the faith of, the, of Christ, even though they, had, they lived before he did. They knew he was coming, so their faith was in him and what he was going to accomplish when he did come. By faith, we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible. Now, that's a very important phrase here because what he's saying is this tangible world that we live in, this physical world that consumes our existence every day, came from the intangible. It did not come from the visible. This is saying that the theory of evolution cannot be true. Because the theory of evolution assumes that things evolve from the visible. Things have come from the visible. Scripture says they come from the invisible. They don't come from the visible. So what we have here 
is a, the basis of Christian faith is the reality that God, who is a spirit being, is the author of all the tangible reality that we live in. And he, by virtue of being a spirit being, his reality is superior reality than physical reality. So in his universe, where he makes all the rules, then here's one of the rules of his universe. Everyone is a person of faith. It's common today for people to be marginalized if you believe in Christ or you are considered to be, quote, a religious person. And I do not like that terminology, so I'm just using it as an accommodation tonight. But if you believe in a God, particularly the God of the Bible, you are marginalized as a person of faith, meaning that the people talking to you and marginalizing you are people of reason. But the reality is they're people of faith too. Their faith is in something different from your faith. If your faith is in Christ, you have built your life on a solid foundation. If your faith is not in Christ, it's in something else, you're building your life on sand. And it will not withstand the storms that are coming. So everyone is a person of faith. Because the visible comes from the invisible. The tangible comes from the intangible. The physical comes from the spiritual. So this is a reality of God's universe, the way he makes it. So as a result of this, theology drives physical reality for individuals, organizations, and cultures. If you want to understand what's going on with a person, what's going on with an organization, what's going on with a country, a nation, a city, anything, drill down to the theology that these people have embraced and you will understand why that, that person, that organization, or that culture is the way it is. So words, actions, and results are the tangible outworking of theology that people have embraced, which means that the most fundamental reality of all is theology. Everything comes from what you believe God to be, and everything in your organization comes from what that organization believes God is to be, and the same way for a culture. So from a biblical worldview, Christ is the only foundation for life. Notice Colossians 2.8. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. There is no other sound foundation for living except Christ. He's the one we need to put faith in. If we put faith in anything else, then we're building our house on a cracked and flawed foundation, and it will fail. So to what degree do you embrace Christ by faith? And that's what we want to focus on now is these seven levels of faith. I think these are cumulative levels to some degree, and I think you'll be able to see where you are in the scale. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you what I call the faithometer. The faithometer is a little meter. It's a device to help you evaluate where you are in terms of your faith in Christ. So this is about faith in Christ. It's not about faith in anything else. It's about faith in Christ. So the very lowest level on the meter is represented here uh, with the arrow on the far left-hand side. It's like it's riding on the bottom of the meter here. This is no faith in Christ. 
This is a state of denial and deception. This is the default condition of man. Now, I think it's very important that we understand that everyone, everyone has an opportunity to come to Christ. I know when I was a young man, it was a very, very popular and common discussion to talk about what about the person that had never heard about Christ. And the more I read scripture, the more I realized that that person doesn't really exist, that the heavens do declare the glory of God. And Paul says in Colossians that the gospel has gone out into all the world. So I am persuaded that anyone that truly will humble himself and seek the Lord, like Cornelius did in Acts 10, then that person will find Christ. But the default condition is a condition of denial and deception, rejection of Christ. That's naturally built in us. And the only way we overcome that default is by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus says this in John 8, 24. He's speaking, he says, I told you that you would die in your sins if you do not believe I am the one I claim to be. You will indeed die in your sins. So Christ is the solution for the sin problem. So if you deny him, if you disregard him, if you ignore him, if you continue to live in the deceptive state you were born in, then you will die in your sins. A description of the state is given to us in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. When you follow the ways of the world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts like the rest we were by nature objects of wrath. When we are born in this world, we are born by nature objects of wrath. We are self-oriented. We're, we're self-gratifying. We are dead spiritually. We are immature. We live as if we're entitled. We have an entitlement mentality. So this is the very lowest level. This is zero faith on the faithometer. All right, let's go to level two. Faith in Christ, but no faith in the providence of God. Faith in Christ, but no faith in the providence of God. Now, what this is, is people people will profess Christ, but they believe some way or another that, that he's not really in charge of his universe, and things can happen to thwart his purpose. So let me just uh, give an illustration of what no faith looks like. After Jesus was teaching the parable of the soil conditions, he would have been teaching beside the sea, and he decided to get in the boat and go to the other side. And so this is what happened after that particular episode. Uh, that day when evening came, he said to his disciples, let's go over to the other side, referring to the other side of the sea. Leaving the crowd behind, they took him along just as he was in the boat. In other words, he may not have even been prepared to make this journey across the sea. Now, there were other boats also with him. A furious squall came up, and the waves broke over the boat so that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern sleeping on a cushion. The disciples woke him and said to him, Teacher, 
Don't you care if we drown? He got up and rebuked the wind and the waves and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down and it was completely calm. And he said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? So this is the condition of no faith. This is a condition of fear. This is a condition where you think that God really is, in, is not in control of his universe. Things, that can, things can happen that mess God up. Things can happen to thwart what it is that he wants to accomplish. Now, Jesus, of course, the reason he was able to sleep on the back of that boat in whatever he had, which was probably not even suitable for where he was, he probably was cold, but he's sleeping back there anyway, even though there's a storm all around him and he's got all these disciples who are in fear, and the only reason I can see that they woke him up is fear loves company. They wanted him to be afraid too, but they had no idea that he had no fear here because he understands there are no circumstances outside of the control of God. There's nothing that God that can happen to, to thwart the plan and purpose of God. And what he's saying to them is you guys don't get it yet. Now, to their credit, they're early on with Christ. They hadn't been with him that long, so they didn't have that good of understanding of really who he was. They're just getting to know him. They've accepted the call to be his disciples, but they really don't know that much about him yet. So this becomes a great lesson where they see circumstances do not in any way intimidate God. They do not get in the way of what God is doing. In fact, God is the author of circumstances and in control of circumstances. So this is the second level of faith. This is considered to be no faith. If you don't believe that God is in control of his universe, you have no faith. If you think God's plan for you and for his universe in some way can be thwarted by by circumstances, you have no faith. If you think in some way... That, that God cannot execute all that he wants to do, he is, that he in some way could be surprised by the universe and, and be confounded as to what to do, then you don't have any faith at all. You have no faith. So that's the second level of faith. Now let's go to the third level of faith. This is called little faith. Little faith is faith in Christ and the providence of God. Okay, you can see that. But there's doubt that God is personal. Is he really, does he really care about me? So that becomes the point of doubt. Well, let's just take a look at a text here that tells us about how God feels about his creation, specifically about human beings. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 and 30. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. Well, that's a big one right there. Most of us fret all the time about our life. We fret about what we will eat or drink or about our clothes, what you will wear. Is not life more important than food and the body more important than clothes? Now, that is a rhetorical question, meaning an implied answer. The implied answer is no. You know, then you have, look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Again, a rhetorical question, the implied answer is yes, you are much more valuable than they are. Who of you, by worrying, can add a single hour to his life? And the implied answer there is no one can. 
And why do you worry about your clothes? Great question. Why do you fret? Look at the lilies of the field. They grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all of his splendor, and Solomon was the most wealthy, the wisest man who ever lived, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow stone into the fire, will he not much more clothe you, O oh, you of little faith? So you see the implied answer is yes, he'll take care of you. If he's going to take care of the grass of the field, he'll certainly take care of human beings because human beings are his highest form of creation. They're the, they're the part of creation that most is like him. We are made in the image of God. There is a, a thumbprint of God on us at a level that is beyond any other creatures, any other beings, any other plants or, or animals in the creation. So if, if he cares about those things that don't have his image, he certainly cares about his things that do have his image. So this is all about recognizing that God is very personal. He cares about every human being. He is going to take care of them, provide a way for them. He will guide them. He will direct them. He will protect them. He will provide for them. So this is the third level of faith. It is little faith. So you see, we have very basic things here, things that should be uh, very simple and easy for us to embrace. So first is you embrace Christ. Then you embrace the reality that Christ is in control of his universe he will accomplish his will. And then you embrace the reality God is personal. He cares about you personally and individually. He will guide you, protect you. He will provide for you. So that's the third level. So let's go on to the fourth level here. The fourth level of faith is childlike faith. Faith like children, where you're humble, you're teachable, you're inquisitive, you're eager to learn. You just can't get enough. My wife for years has taught first grade, and one of the reasons she loves to teach first grade is because first graders are so eager to learn. They're so teachable. They just believe whatever you tell them. So it's just so much fun for her to, to guide them and direct them and teach them. They, there's no pushback. There's no buts, no ands, and no, no, no just debate. They just receive what it is she tells them. Well, that's a picture of childlike faith. So look at this text here in Matthew 18. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child and had him stand among them. Now, don't you know that kind of irritated him? Because here, the, here they are by this time, Matthew 18, they're probably getting on toward the end of their time with Jesus. So they've spent a good bit of time with him. They've heard a lot of things. They've He's taught them things. He's trained them, worked with them. They're probably forgetting to feel like they're pretty hot stuff. And so now he's going to put, a, put things in perspective. You want to know who the greatest is in the kingdom? Well, take this little child here. Okay, this is my object lesson today. He says, I tell you the truth. Unless you change. Uh-oh, we haven't arrived? Yes, you haven't arrived. You need to change. Because like and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, wait a minute. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to them like they're pagans. Yes, he is, isn't he? 
Well, he, he has a different view of what it is to walk with him and know him than most of us do today. Most of us are buying into the idea that if somebody says they've accepted Christ, that they have. Or if somebody says that I go to church, then they're a Christian. Or somebody gets baptized, and they're a Christian. You know, or somebody shows up for Bible study. We assume they're a Christian. You know, that wasn't always the case. If, if you'd lived maybe 300 years ago in the Puritan communities, what you would have discovered is that if you made a profession of faith in Christ, what the Puritans would have said is, well, that's very good. Now we want to validate that profession. And the way that you validate that profession is we're going to assign somebody to disciple you and teach you what it means to be a Christian, teach you how to live and breathe and think based on Christianity and the principles of Christ. We're going to teach you to look like Christ, to talk like Christ, to think like Christ. And so that disciple would work with you for a period of time until he was satisfied that you really did get it, that you really reflected Jesus Christ in your life, and then he could testify for you, I believe this person has been born again. You see, we've lost really that sense of how to validate anybody's profession. Well, Jesus didn't. He didn't lose it. He's telling them, I'm, I'm going to tell you how to validate whether or not you're in the kingdom or not, and that is you've got to become like a little child. You've got to have this childlike faith. Let's read on here. Therefore, whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourself. Become so teachable and pliable and inquisitive and very just believe what Jesus says. You see, today we don't really want to believe what the Word says because it says some hard things, things we don't like. You know, we don't like it that there are going to be some people who are going to go to hell. We don't like those kinds of things. We can't always explain those things. We don't really like the fact they're sin. But the reality is God's in charge of his universe. He gets to define it and control it and manage it the way he sees fit. So our job is to line up with him. So humbling ourselves like little children is very important. And whoever welcomes a child like this in my name welcomes me. But if anyone causes one of these little, little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a large millstone around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. That's a pretty severe comparison there. But you see, this is, this is what childlike faith is. It's humble, teachable, inquisitive. It's no pushback. It's just trust in what your master is telling you. Now, another characteristic of childlike faith is that children live very much in the tangible world. Yes, I know they have uh, imaginations and make-believe and that kind of thing, but they really don't understand spiritual reality well. But they, they're getting familiar with the tangible physical world and believing what you have to say and what Jesus says about it. So this is basic fourth level of faith, childlike faith. So now the next level then deals with the limitations of childlike faith, which is that's limited to the tangible world. Now here we have what I call faith. This is understanding that spiritual reality trumps and drives physical reality. That is the underlying reality of this universe is spiritual. Theology drives everything. I frequently uh, make that comment to people that theology drives everything, and I usually get very strange looks, which tells me that most people are not even where close to this level of faith. Most of them are struggling down at level two or three. 
In fact, it's I find it rare to find anybody at level four, much less level five. But level five here is about really getting the nature of God's existence, that what is visible did not come from the visible. It came from the invisible. It came from God. And so all the rules for all the universe have come from God. Everything comes from God. So let's just take a look at an example of this reality. Right after Jesus had his, his affirmation from the Father, his baptism, and the dove descends on him, and the Father speaks from heaven and says, This is my Son, in whom I am well pleased. Then the very next thing that happens is that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. Now that sounds like a really cruel thing to happen. You've just had this wonderful mountaintop experience with God, and now you're going to get tested. We see, testing is all about revealing truth. Testing is not there to do you harm. It's not there because God is, is, is mean and, and unkind or he's trying to be difficult. He is trying to build us up. And so Jesus, because he took on human flesh, he experiences things just like we do. So he gets tested. And look what this test is. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. Yeah, I bet he was. I would be very hungry. I would be looking at that sand wondering if it, how would, how would, what it would feel like to have that in my stomach. Well, the tempter came to him. You see, the enemy likes to come when you're weakest, when you're most vulnerable. So the tempter came to him and said, if you are the Son of God. You see, attacks him on the very thing that he's just been affirmed on. Immediately prior to this incident, his identity as a son of God had been affirmed. And please note that our identity is rooted in our relationship with our creator. Our identity is not defined by our performance. Sadly, most people in the world that I run into still live and operate as if our identity is defined by our performance. That was not the case with Jesus. It's not the case with us. Your identity is defined in relationship with your creator. If you know Christ, if you genuinely know Christ, then you are a son of the Most High God. If you do not know Christ, then you're not a son of the Most High God. That's your identity. And I invite you, come to know him. That is the only place that you want to live from. You want to build your life from the Son. So if you're the Son of God, is the question posed by the Satan to Jesus. He says, tell these stones to become bread. Now, could Jesus do that? Well, he most certainly could. He's the Son of God. He can do anything he chooses to do. He certainly has the power to turn you know, stones into bread. But lo notice what he says. It is written, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Now, what in the world is he talking about here? Well, I think what he's saying here is my Father has assigned me this test. And even though I can... I can get out of it because I can turn the stones into bread. It is not my prerogative to do that. I do not have the right to get out of a test that God has set up for me. I don't have a right to walk away from this because I don't live by bread alone. I live first and foremost on the words of God because spiritual reality drives physical reality. Jesus, he was a human being, had human needs, he needed food just like anybody else would. And after 40 days of fasting, he still was able to say spiritual reality 
is more important to me than physical reality. Yes, I'm hungry, but I'm more hungry to obey God than I am physically hungry. So that's what understanding that spiritual reality trumps physical reality, understanding that God is always working his purposes, and our obedience, first and foremost, is to him and secondarily to our human needs. So that's an amazing level of faith. Most of us are not anywhere close to that level. Well, it gets higher. Look at the next one, the sixth level of faith. Okay, This is great faith. This is understanding of and submission to God's authority, including delegated authority. In other words, there is an authority system that God has ordained for his universe. We are called to live within that authority system. Now, that's an amazing thing. We live in a time when the culture does not really like to submit to authority. In fact, most people really run from authority. They, they disdain authority. They may outwardly act like they care, but inwardly they don't. They may outwardly act like they are submitted, but inwardly they don't. I actually had a young man a little over a year ago say this to me, and he didn't realize what he said. We're having a lunch discussion, and we're talking about, you know, his position, uh, his, his relationship to the Christian congregation that we're in. He made the comment, he said, I am outwardly submitted, but not inwardly. And when he made that comment, I was so stunned that he would be that brutally honest that it, I just froze, because I'd never had anybody say that, although I'd seen a lot of people that had lived that reality. I'd never heard anybody say it. So I just looked at him and just stunned that he admitted the truth, that he was really not submitted, but he's running around telling everybody he's submitted. You see, this guy is a picture, I think, of the norm. What happens in most of the time in most Christian communities is the people are really not submitted to God's authority system. And we come up with all kinds of excuses. Well, the leaders are dysfunctional. Yeah, they are, because no leaders are perfect. You know, and we and and I don't I don't like what they're doing. I don't agree what they're doing. I don't understand what they're doing. We come up with all these things, reasons why we we can't submit to authority. Well, you will never, never go to the sixth level of faith until you really get it that God does delegate authority. He uses even dysfunctional authority, and he expects you to submit to his authority. Probably one of the greatest texts on this is 1 Peter chapter 2, where it specifically talks about the fact that we're charged to be submitted to all authority, civil authority, workplace authority, including dysfunctional authority. So that's an amazing thing. And, of course, the picture is Christ. Christ was submitted to the authority of his time, and it was highly dysfunctional. It even killed him, but he was submitted to it because that is the, the, the great faith, the great level of faith. So let's look at a text here that illustrates this. This is Matthew chapter 8, verses 5 through 10. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him and asked him for help. Lord, he said, my servant lies at home paralyzed and in terrible suffering. Jesus said to him, I will go and heal him. The centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority. With soldiers under me, I tell this one go and he goes and 
that would come and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was astonished. The word there is thumadso. He wondered. He was mar- it was a marvel here. There was admiration going on. Thumadso. Jesus said, wow. And he said to those following him, he turns to his followers and says, I tell you the truth. It's like, listen up, guys. I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. This word for great faith refers to great quantity, a depth, a rich understanding of what real faith is. He understands how God's universe works, that authority is a key element to God's universe. It's a key to maturity in Christ is learning how to submit to authority and live under authority and find protection under authority. One of the things that I think that God is teaching me right now is how to really work as a team, work with with other men that are mostly my peers, but yet I'm submitting to them in the context of the community. I'm recognizing that the perspective of the community is, is generally more accurate than the perspective of the individual. And so I'm, I'm submitting to God's principle of community and practicing being under authority in a community. And, of course, we can practice this truth in our homes, you know, in our businesses, in our communities, in our churches, in every environment, God has delegated authority. And if you want to be a man of great faith, you learn to live under that authority. My wife was sharing a story today about a situation at her school. They have a selected missions, and there was a particular family that they decided not to invite back. And this is a family that had been at the school a long time, had many children there, but they've had a lot of difficulty with the family and just uh, were not equally yoked with this family. And so they sent them a letter to declining to allow the, their children to come back. Well, the, the parents just went nuts. They went ballistic and uh, came and, you know, protested and, and uh, did everything they knew to do to try to get the school to change their mind. And as I was talking to my wife, I said, what a great example of lack of humility, lack of submission to authority. If they wanted to talk to you, what they should have done is come humbly and say, help us understand what's happening here and how we need to change so that we could fit into this community better. We would be an asset and not a liability. But it's very, very hard for people in our culture today that disdain authority to do things like that. People tend to assert their rights, make demands, push for their will and their agenda, and consequently, they don't know how to live at a great level of faith. They don't know what it is to have great faith. Most of these people are living way down on level two and three, and they have no sense of what it is to truly live at these higher levels of faith. We have one more level, the seventh level of faith here. This is the increased faith. This is the faith of a humble, selfless, unworthy, faithful servant. This is a faith where there is no entitlements, where there's life and maturity. The contrast of the no faith in Christ, which is death and immaturity and entitlements, this is the life, maturity, and no entitlements. This is a person who lives totally as a servant of Jesus Christ and makes no demands 
no claims upon God. You know, one of the things that bothers me a bit today about some of the cultures of Christianity I run into is you hear people talking about making claims upon God as if uh, God has to be challenged in some way. No, God doesn't need to be challenged. And I don't think we have any right to make claims upon God. You know, our, our only right is to live as a servant of Jesus Christ. And until we get that picture, we will never live at this seventh level of faith. So let's just take a look at Luke 17, verses 5 through 10. And the apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. Increase our faith. Now, can you imagine that saying to the Lord? You know, come to the Lord and say, Lord, increase our faith. Now, look what, look how he responds to that. Well, first of all, he could have laughed at him, but he didn't. What he said, he gave him a couple of pictures. The first picture is a, a picture of a, of, of a tree. If you had faith as small as a mustard seed, you would say to this mulberry bush, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it would obey you. In other words, this is, I think, level two faith here. He's saying, you guys don't even have level two faith yet. But you're asking for increased faith? Let me tell you what increased faith looks like. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come, come along now and sit down to eat? No, he wouldn't say that. Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink? Now see, today, if that were going on today, there would be a protest. Here's this servant that's worked all day in the field, and back then they worked long days and hard days, and they had very little in terms of nutrition and, and fluids to help them. So you've got, you've got a servant who's really tired. He comes in from the field, and the master says, go clean up, fix my meal, and when I've gotten through eating and drinking, then you can have your supper. Now, this servant's probably starving to death, but he does not have the right to stop and take care of himself. His only right and duty is to obey the master. Notice what, what it says. Would he not rather say, that is the master, prepare my supper, get yourself ready, and wait on me while I eat and drink, and after that you may eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because that he, was, that he did what he was told to do? We would all be talking about, well, you need to give this guy a merit badge. He deserves a big reward. Maybe we need to give him some, uh, some plaque or uh, some public acknowledgement of what an incredible thing he did. He went way over the above the call of duty. Now look what it says. So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now that is a staggering thing for us. It's very hard for us to get our arms around that because the thinking is so foreign from the way we live today. We have such an entitlement mentality. We think that God owes us something. In fact, the popular brand of Christianity today is what I call the genie in the bottle brand of Christianity. And that, by that I mean that what we do in many of our congregations that we call churches is we try to do some kind of religious thing to make God happy with us. And once God gets happy with us, he'll show up. And once he shows up, then maybe he'll do something to make our life easier. Maybe he'll meet our financial needs or meet our physical needs or, uh, you know, or in some way 
you know, give us peace or he'll do something to make our tangible life easier, deliver us from bad circumstances, those kinds of things. But you see, that's not what Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that God is in control of his universe, and there's nothing we can do to be worthy of him. We are unworthy servants. The only way we merit standing in his presence is the blood of Christ. It's the acceptance of the blood of Christ that gives us standing with God. So here we are, these unworthy servants, and when we realize we have no claim on God, we have no rights before him, whatever he tells us to do, we should do it, and we're not entitled to any thank yous, any kudos. We have done our duty because that's what servants do. They obey the master. And until we become servants truly in our heart, where we know we are simply here to obey the master, and that's all we're here to do, there's no other purpose, then we will never get to this level. I was speaking last night at a, another church. I asked the question, what's the purpose of Christianity? Now, I was speaking to a group of, of leaders. These were church leaders. The room goes silent when you ask questions like that. And so then finally, after you kind of coax them along, you start hearing things like, um, well, it's to help people get saved, get as many people in heaven as possible. Somebody will pop up and say, uh, glorify God, enjoy him forever. So now you know you have the Presbyterians there. And uh, then you'll have other things. Somebody might say, well, make disciples, which is good. Those are all good things. But nobody really got it. The real essence of Christianity is to obey Christ. That's the essence. And if you don't obey Christ, if your every thought, word, and action is not moving increasingly to the obedience to Christ, why do you think you're even a Christian? You know, Christians, by definition, are followers of Christ. And so we should be growing up in these levels of faith to the point where we become the selfless, humble, unworthy, dutiful servant whose only objective is to do the will of Christ. We make no claims. We have no rights, no entitlements. We find life in being a servant. We mature by being a servant. We become what God has called us to be and do what God has called us to do by being a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, please understand, this is not a works orientation. This is an expression of what happens when somebody, somebody truly comes to Christ by faith. A mark of that reality is they grow up in Christ and become this kind of person, this selfless, humble, unworthy servant. And it all starts with Christ and the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit to make this a reality. You can't move from the lowest level of faith to the highest level of faith by yourself in your own strength. You can only do that by virtue of the power of Christ at work in you through the Holy Spirit to mature you. Everyone is a person of faith. It doesn't matter who you are, where you live, when you live, what you claim, you're a person of faith. Even an atheist, Richard Dawkins, one of the leading atheists today, is a person of faith. His belief is there is no God, and everything in his life is based on that. So faith in Christ is the only sound foundation from which to live life. Richard Dawkins is living a flawed life. His life will not reflect reality in the end. He's making lots of intellectual arguments 
that have no sound basis in reality. And when Christ returns, it will be a reality check for him if he doesn't find Christ before he dies. The seven levels of faith are faithless, deny Christ, no relational knowledge of Christ, no faith, which is fear that circumstances will disrupt God's plan, little faith, which is doubt about God's personal care and guidance and provision for you, basic faith or childlike faith, which is humble, teachable, inquisitive, but focused on the tangible, and then there's faith, where you get it, the spiritual reality drives all physical reality. There is great faith where you understand authority and you live in submission to authority. And let me just quickly say this. One of the ways that you know is when you are under godly people and you do what they say, whether you agree with it or not, whether you want to or not, whether you understand it or not, those are not issues. They tell you to do something, you do it. That's a sign of being under authority. And finally, the seventh level is increased faith, living as a selfless, humble, dutiful servant who is regulated solely by the will of God, which generally means living according to a biblical worldview. That's what BWV stands for. And specifically, which is about discovering and fulfilling your life purpose. You see, God has a general will, which is his principles in Scripture, which we call a biblical worldview, and everyone is mandated to live according to those principles. And then there's a specific will of God which applies to each one of us. Each one of us has a different specific will of God which relates to the plan and purpose of God in our lives. And so our job as faithful, dutiful servants is to discover that specific will of God and to, it, to do it. So my contention is this. If you don't begin to grow up in your faith and mature in your faith, to where you, you become, you know, uh, at least into the great faith and hopefully the increased faith, if you don't do that, you will never find your life purpose well because it will be thwarted by these low levels of faith some way, somehow. So one of the tools out there to help you is the Strategic Life Alignment Seminar. I know many of you have been through that seminar. But this is a seminar that will help you learn solely to live according to the will of God. And there's no other way to build your life on a solid foundation but to do it this way. The level of faith as a servant doing what the Master has created you to do. Well, Father, thank you for our time tonight. We ask that uh, there would be fresh revelation of what it is to walk by faith, to trust you, to really build our life on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. So give us that grace to grow up and mature and to be the people you've called us to be to do what you called us to do. For your glory and honor, we commit ourselves to you in Jesus' name. Amen.